Welcome to Two Messianic Jews. I'm Eric, of course, joined by Jonathan. And today we're doing something a little bit different, and that is a mailbag episode. So as a way to say thank you to our financial supporters, we ask them to give us questions that we will give uh, our best informal answer to. And we just wanted to try this format out, uh, give you guys something uh, a little bit new. And so again, thank you for the financial supporters uh, who support us over on Subscribestar. There's a link in the description if, if you'd like to join them. Just to give you a little bit more information about the Subscribestar, there's tiers starting as low as $5 a month. And every tier has the same privileges of gaining early access to content and the ability to ask us questions for mailbags just like this one. And so if you would like to become a financial supporter, just follow the link in the description. Your help would be greatly appreciated. And thank you again to those who already have shown their support and submitted some questions for us to uh, give an answer to today. Yeah, and also when we answer these questions, I just want you guys to keep in mind that when we make regular videos, we spend between a month and a year preparing our research, you know, researching the topic and developing our arguments and things like that. But with these videos, we're, we're given the questions and we do some research and, you know, these are the, the conclusions, the, the where we're at right now. And I just want you guys to keep that in mind as we're answering these questions so we can learn from you, we can learn from us, and we can just, you know, grow as a community to have better answers to questions that, that we're asking. So yeah, as Eric said, I just want to thank all our subscribe star all-stars for uh, asking these questions and supporting us so that we can do what we're doing. So appreciate you guys. Yeah. And sometimes these questions may result in a more full length uh, lecture type video down the line. And so as Jonathan mentioned, we aren't doing really in-depth research on these questions for these mailbag types of episodes. We're just kind of giving you our, our current opinions on them. So, you know, don't be surprised if, you know, we give an answer here, but then you check out the full length video, you know, whenever we get to it and we come up with a different answer because we had the time to spend doing a lot of research on it. So just to give those caveats, we just want to explore some issues with you guys. We just thought this would be kind of fun. And so just to jump right into it, we were given a very complicated one right off the bat. So this should be a lot of fun. And so the question is, I'll read it in full. There's some, some sub questions, but I'll read it in full. And then Jonathan uh, will, will take the bulk um, of answering this one. And so the question is, concerning sin offerings in the temple at the time of Yeshua, for the Jews who rejected Yeshua as their Messiah, animal sacrifices for sin offerings done in obedience to the Mosaic covenant continued until the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So question one, what is your thought on these sacrifices which were offered up following the crucifixion and resurrection of Messiah? Next question, was this an affront to God in light of the sacrifice of his son? Was God okay with it because of the ignorance of the people regarding the appearance of Messiah and their continued obedience to the Mosaic covenant? Was the destruction of the temple related to the ongoing sacrifices, which, in my opinion, says the questioner, were adding insult to injury regarding the blood atonement of Yeshua for the sins of the world? So there we go. A nice, light, easy one to start off with. Um, why don't you take it, Jonathan? Okay, so I'm going to start with the last question that this, that this questioner asked, and that's, was the destruction of the temple related to the ongoing sacrifices, which in my opinion, were adding insult to injury regarding the blood atonement of Yeshua for the sins of the world. So I think that there's like a lot of different ways that people have answered this question of why was the temple destroyed? And one of the ways is the, is the, is the way the questioner is, states it basically in his opinion, the temple was destroyed because the offering of sacrifices in the temple was offering basically insult to injury because Yeshua already made the ultimate sacrifice. See what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, and so what I'm, what another way of, of addressing this question is that a lot of, um, a lot of people say that, or interpreters have said is that the temple was destroyed because the Jewish people killed God. The Jewish people killed the Messiah, Jesus. Right. And that's why God punished Israel by taking away their temple and ending ancient Judaism. Right. So that's another way. Um, there's, there's other ways that are offered, but I think that Anders Runison, who teaches at the University of Oslo in Norway, I think he actually gives the best case for the reason the temple was destroyed. And that's basically that in Matthew 23, 
Yeshua is criticizing the Pharisees because they are participating in immoral practices that have defiled the temple. And so because the temple is defiled, that causes God to leave the temple because he can't basically habitate the, the space, the defiled space. And so that causes Yeshua, of course, or that is the reason Yeshua predicts the temple's destruction, which of course happens in 70 AD. So essentially, Runison's arguing that the temple was destroyed because of moral defilement caused by immoral practices that the Pharisees were, um, were engaging with. So let's look at the, the first text that, or the, the primary text that Runison makes his case. So in Matthew 23, verse 33 through 35, this is what Yeshua says to the Pharisees. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that upon you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So here, what, what, Yeshua, what Yeshua is saying is that of the sins that, uh, that these Pharisees are guilty of, Ultimately, they're guilty of committing bloodshed, which is one of the worst sources of moral defilement in Jewish tradition, as Renison points out. So I think we actually have more context to why uh, Yeshua is claiming that the Pharisees are um, defiling the temple. And that's because if you look at uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Damascus document, I think uh, a section in there actually supports Renison's argument even, even stronger. So... In the Damascus document, in, which is abbreviated as CD, so CD5, there's this text that basically says um, the, the author or the authors of this Damascus document are saying that uh, these, these, there's these people who are engaging in practices that have defiled the temple. They have defiled the sanctuary, as it says. And so uh, there's actually a very similar criticism of these, of these people um, calling them who spinning uh spinning spiders webs there's this really strong language of of criticism of these people that's um the writers of the of the damascus document are using that's very similar to how yeshua criticizes the pharisees in matthew 23 so uh we see that the writers of the of this Qumran text are criticizing these people who are engaging with immoral pharisaic practices as uh, a number of scholars have pointed out and Yeshua is doing something similar in Matthew 23, saying that the Pharisees are guilty of bloodshed, among other things, that have defiled the Jerusalem temple. And this is important because what Rudison points out, I think his argument's strong, is because when God leaves the first temple before its destruction, God's, God's glory, his presence moves to the Mount of Olives. And we see that in Ezekiel 11, verse 23. And so in after Yeshua... Uh, says God's presence left the temple at the end of Matthew 23. Yeshua actually leaves the temple and he goes to the Mount of Olives, just like God did when before the first temple was destroyed. So ultimately what Runison's pointing out is that the destruction of the Jerusalem temple was it was not because of the the Jewish people killing God, the Messiah. That's not that's not the reason Matthew offers. The reason he offers is that Yeshua is telling the Pharisees they defiled the temple, which has made the temple susceptible to uh, its upcoming destruction, which Yeshua predicts. And that's that's the reason. Uh, Pharisaic practices that defiled the Jerusalem temple. So while those typical explanations tend to really isolate uh, Yeshua's crucifixion, it, as far as the explanation as to why the temple is destroyed, whether that's because the Jews killed Jesus or because the Jews aren't recognizing the efficacy of uh, Yeshua's atonement. They really isolate that occurrence. But Runeson seems to be pointing out that the Pharisees were engaging in certain practices, especially, you know, even bloodshed prior to Yeshua's crucifixion that already left the temple susceptible. So while Yeshua's crucifixion may or may not be kind of included in that general rebuke, the Pharisees were already defiling the temple in these manners even prior to the crucifixion is that fair to say that's fair to say and i also want to just give like a caveat like 
we a lot of times, I mean, you just said it, and I, I probably said it when I was giving my explanation, uh, the Pharisees, right? I don't want to give this idea that all of the Pharisees were killing people, right? And that they're all engaged in this practice or to say a statement about all Pharisees, right? Um, I, I think Yeshua was engaging with specific Pharisees who are engaging in these immoral practices. And I'll get to more than this in my next video where I talk about did Jesus oppose Judaism, but I just want to make that um, distinction right there so people aren't thinking that these Pharisees are just these awful people. Um, there were some who were doing awful things, but um, which defiled the temple, I think. But uh, yeah, just want to make that caveat in there. Very good. So before you move on to the rest of these questions, there's a popular rabbinic text that I hear brought up pretty frequently in, in Messianic Jewish circles for, for various reasons. And that is from the Babylonian Talmud, Yoma 39 and B, where it's describing these uh, certain signs that uh, God gave in the temple to demonstrate that the sacrifices that were being given were, you know, being effective. And one of those signs was a scarlet thread hanging in the temple. Mm -hmm. And whenever the sacrifices were accepted by God, it was supernaturally turn white. God demonstrating that the sacrifices were accepted by him and effective. But Yoma 39 describes how 40 years prior to the temple's destruction, so that would be around 30 AD, or it would be 30 AD, it says that the scarlet thread stopped turning white. And so, of course, people make much of that, but I'm just curious, what do you make of that text and how does that fit into this conversation? Yeah, that's actually a text I was looking at when I was uh, preparing for this, this answer, looking into um, uh, the, this, this question. But And I, so I want to read actually what Michael Brown uh, argues in his book, The Real Kosher Jesus. So let me, let me pull that out. So when Dr. Brown uh, talks about this, he, he, he mentions Yoma 39b, Yoma 39a. And he says the temple was destroyed in 70 CE. So from 30 to 70 CE, a period of 40 years, the annual atonement sacrifices were not accepted. What great event happened in the year 30? Yeshua was rejected and nailed to a cross. Is it possible that God no longer accepted the atonement sacrifices because the Messiah had offered himself as the perfect final sacrifice, making himself a guilt offering as it is written in Isaiah 53 verse 10? So, yeah, I think this is, this is a possible explanation of what's happening there. But I also think that Runison uh, can offer us another answer to this question. And that's that the a possibility, right, that this is, this is a possibility, you know, that the, the Babylonian Talmud was written much later than the events being, uh, you know, described, of course, in Matthew's Gospel, which is in the first century. But even with that, an explanation for why the signs of, God's, of God accepting the sacrifices offered on, on Yom Kippur for atonement, it could be the case that it's because in that year 30, the temple was defiled by these uh, these immoral Pharisaic practices, mm -hmm. that the, the, these practices that the Pharisees were engaging with that have made the temple defiled, right? So at that point, God was not accepting the Yom Kippur sacrifices. And this makes sense in, in, in line with Runison's argument, because the there needs to be a a new source of atonement because the temple can no longer be inhabited, like inhabiting God's presence. And so what he argues, what Runison argues is that God's presence resides in the, in Yeshua, the Messiah. That's, that's the location where, um, where we can come to and actually receive atonement. And the atonement is made through Yeshua's, through Yeshua's death through, and, Matthew's gospel, um, actually Yeshua describes his death at, in terms of Isaiah 53, making it a ransom, right? So um, I think we can say that Yoma 39a and b, uh, we can explain that if we, if we need to by saying that the, the destruction, the defilement of the temple was the reason God was not accepting these sacrifices caused by these uh, Pharisees engaging in immoral practices, which, which of course caused that defiled, defiled temple. Uh, that's very cool and definitely a lot to chew on. And I guess you, you'll probably give us more to chew on considering there's a few more questions here. Yeah. So the, the next question uh, within this general question is, what is your thought on these sacrifices which were offered up following the crucifixion and resurrection of Messiah? Was this an affront to God in light of the sacrifice of his son? Yeah. So 
if I didn't have the book of Acts or, you know, Matthew or, or other texts like that, um, well, we wouldn't be having this conversation in the first place. But um, if, I, if I didn't have Acts, let's say that, um, I would think that it, it would be like an affront to the sacrifices. And we actually see um, to, to the ultimate sacrifice that Yeshua gave because we see actually the, um, the members of the Qumran community, when they thought that the temple was defiled uh, through because of uh, what's probably uh, Pharisaic practices, they actually left the Jerusalem temple and created their own community and had a, a new way of receiving atonement or a way that you could say is alternative to the temple sacrifices because they didn't think that those sacrifices were efficacious. So I, I could say that. I could say that, you know, they were like, why would the, why would followers of Yeshua engage in these and um, sacrifices of the temple. But what we find is that they actually did. So if you read Acts 21, Paul offers a sacrifice because he's he's going through a Nazarite vow of himself and others with him. And so he had to actually offer a sacrifice or he had to have a sacrifice offered in the temple. And if you want more on that, I actually, Eric, yeah, I think people should watch your video where you go into this, where you discuss Rabbi Michael Skobek's reading of Matthew 21, or sorry, Acts 21, and, and your reading of Acts 21, along with uh, Jewish scholars and Christian scholars um, on that. I think that's a great video. But on this point, I'd say Paul is like a model to show us that Jewish followers of Yeshua continue to, um, to engage in in temple worship and sacrifices. And so we actually see that it's so that um, followers of Yeshua in the book of Acts, including Paul himself, uh, they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the pilgrimage festivals like, like Passover, right? So if they're coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, well, there is a necessary sacrifice that's involved in the celebration of Passover while the temple stood. So I think, I think that really helps kind of show that followers of Yeshua if we, if we think about Second Temple Judaism, right, and there's, there's Pharisees, there's Sadducees, there's members of the, the Jesus movement, which they call Haderach, the way, and there's the Qumran community. The Qumran community, you could say, is more uh, in saying we're done with the temple. Like, you know, it's, it's a holy space, of course, but it's defiled. And the followers of Yeshua were, um, they also agreed the temple was defiled. Uh, that's because that's what Yeshua is teaching right there in Matthew 23. But they still said, okay, God's commanded us to offer sacrifices, um, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to offer sacrifices. So I don't, I don't think uh, they would say it's an affront to God that in light of Yeshua's ultimate sacrifice of his son. But when the temple was eventually destroyed, they had a solution to receiving atonement because they already had their atonement. Yeshua's atonement, his blood sacrifice, his, his death on, by crucifixion allowed them to receive atonement. And so um, we are... They're, and of course, they're grateful, but being grateful, they still participated in sacrifices as recorded in the book of Acts. Very cool. So despite their knowledge that the temple wasn't being very effective, you know, in regards to these sacrifices, they still saw validity in using the temple still to perform many other functions and maintain a loyalty to the temple and the, the Jewish community there uh, that Qumran didn't feel, you know, they went all the way out to the desert you know, and disconnected themselves entirely. Yeah, it's cool because, like, they're participating in this kind of, like, Jewish conversation of the defiled temple. You know, there's Qumran, there's the Jesus followers, and, uh, yeah, so, like, even though they're saying the temple sacrifices aren't efficacious, that doesn't delegitimize, it, it doesn't delegitimize their, um, their, their Jewishness as a movement. It just showed how they function within that Jewish society. Very cool. All right, so one last question um, about the sacrifices. Was God okay with it because of the ignorance of the people regarding the appearance of Messiah and their continued obedience to the Mosaic Covenant? Right, so I think everything I've already said um, answers this question, allows me to answer this question really quickly, and that's, um, I don't think so. I don't think the ignorance of the people had anything to do with it because the disciples knew about Yeshua atonement and they still engaged in sacrifices in the temple so followers of yeshua the apostles right paul he knew it full well of course he's the one teaching this about yeshua's atonement throughout his letters and he's still engaged in sacrifice so uh, i think i think that sufficiently answers that question but i love anyone who's who's listening to this podcast or watching the video i'd love to hear your feedback because i'm still developing my own thoughts on this so i i appreciate you guys entering this conversation with us
Yeah, there's definitely a, a complicated one to, to start this series off. For sure. We, we envisioned this being light and informal. We weren't really given any light and informal questions to start off with, which is fine. You know, we'll tackle them. Um, but this was a, definitely a difficult one to, to deal with. So, yeah, we definitely look forward to your thoughts. And that John will definitely be doing some videos on this in the future. Okay, so now I'm going to be off the hot seat, and now you are Eric. You ready? Ready. Okay, so this is the, this is the question. It's kind of like my question. There's some sub-questions attached, and this, this is what the questioner asks. He says, often in Messianic Jewish circles, the subject of Gentiles wanting to emulate Jews and follow Torah is a hot topic. But I love to hear your thoughts on whether Jewish believers should follow Torah, and if so, to what extent? Does believing in does believing in and following Yeshua for a Jew mean having to adhere to all the law? What of Jews who are raised secular and are not connected to Torah observance, or even Jewish traditional holiday practices? What of Jews who have come to faith in and are planted in Christian environments? How does Torah fit into their lives? Right. Definitely. Definitely a lot of layers to this one as well. For sure. And I know he's focusing on Jewish relationship to the Torah, Jewish followers of Yeshua's relationship to the Torah. But he does make this little comment at the beginning uh, about the subject of Gentiles wanting to emulate Jews and, and follow Torah. And of course, in the Messianic Jewish movement, this is a very relevant conversation to have. And so just to spend a little bit of time on it, just since he brings it up, I'll offer a few different things. Um, but first of all, this is going to be a primary topic of discussion on two Messianic Jews. So we'll have many videos covering this topic in depth and exploring it very much. This is a topic that definitely needs more development within Messianic Judaism. But just to offer a few quick thoughts that I think are important to mention pretty early on in our channel's development. And... So I want to offer some of the bad reasons that I've heard from Gentiles about why they engage in Jewish practices and why they participate in Jewish traditions. So I'll start with the bad reasons that I hear, and then I'll offer a few good reasons. And Jonathan, of course, you can jump in whenever you would like. So as far as the bad reasons that I've heard Gentiles give, I've heard three most generally, of course, there's there's more out there, but these are the three most common, one, common ones that I hear. One is that they think they are a spiritual Jew. And so then, therefore, they should adopt, you know, these Jewish practices because, you know, they, they practically are a Jew. Then number two, they think Gentiles have the same responsibility to follow Torah as Jews. Again, this is one of these topics that we'll cover a lot, and I've covered a little bit in um, the Shema's impact on the gospel replacement theology to go more in depth there. But essentially, Gentiles, some Gentiles think that they have the same responsibility as Jewish people to engage in even the Jewish specific aspects of Torah, like Sabbath keeping, like the festivals, like kosher, stuff like that. And this is wrongheaded. Uh, distinctions and differences remain between Jews and Gentiles within the uh, body of Messiah. What unites us is our faith in Yeshua and our shared indwelling of the Spirit and our community found in that. We are not expected to relate to the Torah in the same way, Jews and Gentiles. So I think that that is a, a misunderstanding that leads many Gentiles to adopt Torah observances as they understand it. So then the third reason that I've often heard is that they think the church is poisoned by pagan roots. So this is another one of those big things, but essentially they're just wrong. The church is not poisoned with pagan roots. And to make a brief case, even if there are some traditions that find some rootedness in paganism, that doesn't mean that they are operating in pagan fashion within a church context. And, you know, just to name things, I really don't think Christmas and Easter have pagan roots. I'll just leave it at that, let you guys chew on that. Uh, we'll do some videos or probably have on a few interviews, uh, but we recommend Inspiring Philosophies videos. Check his out. And so, again, like, that's just a really bad reason, I think, to 
for Gentiles to leave the church, especially if they were at a, a healthy church and they just read something online about like some pagan stuff. That is a poor reason to then plant yourself into a Messianic Jewish context or just to start doing Jewish things on your own. So those are some of the bad reasons that I hear. So now for a few good reasons that I think Gentiles adopt Jewish practices, try their best to observe the Torah. One, and the one I'm, I'm most certain of, is that they are part of an intermarriage with a Jewish person. And so I think for fairly obvious reasons, it's very helpful uh, for the children and very natural for both members of the married couple to follow the same traditions and the importance of, of Jewish continuity lends weight to adopting Jewish things as a family and all that good stuff. And then two, um, the second good reason that I think is that they have a genuine call to participate in Messianic Judaism. And so that's a little vague. And so like, what does it mean to have a genuine call? How do you know if, how do you know if you have a genuine call? And those are very good questions that, you know, neither me or Jonathan really know the answer to because we can't really relate to that. You know, we're both Jewish, so we feel uh, and recognize that we have a covenantal responsibility to do these things. But I think some things that may be indications that you have a genuine call is one, you don't hold to any of the bad reasons that I mentioned earlier. Two, you are unashamed of your non-Jewish identity. And, you know, you're not doing these things out of some strange desire to, to be a Jew. Three, you don't think that all Gentiles have this call. You understand that if you do have this call, it is an individual call. It's not a, a universal command you know, that you happen to recognize and, you know, everybody else is lost. Perhaps God is placing you in a certain place and leading you by the spirit to engage in these types of practices uh, in a Messian Jewish context. <laughs> and I think those are indications, at least, that, you know, you're, you have an, a healthy understanding of the Gentile relationship to Torah and, like, kind of the Messianic Jewish communal side of things. What do you think about all that? Am I pretty clear in what I'm saying, Jonathan? Do you have anything to, to add? Uh, you mentioned one thing about universal command as opposed to covenant responsibility. And yeah, I think that's really crucial there because as Messianic Jews, we hold that we have a covenantal responsibility. I'm, well, I'm speaking for myself. I know your position, Eric, but the central claim, one of the central claims that Messianic Judaism makes, I think, is that Jews have a covenantal responsibility to live as Jews, which means keeping and observing the Torah, but also that Gentiles do not have a covenantal responsibility. So making that clear distinction for a Gentile saying that um, this is a call that God has, basically God has called me to live in this community, um, that's very different than saying I have a covenantal responsibility to live in this community and live in this manner of life. Um, so making that distinction, I think, is, is, is very key to basically identifying whether you have a healthy reason for uh, joining, uh, you could say, Messianic Judaism or Messianic community as a Gentile. Yeah, that, that's very good. Very good explanation. And that actually reminds me that maybe perhaps another aspect of, of recognizing that it's a calling and, you know, it's not a commandment for Gentiles is I, I read a, a very cool article uh, in Kesher, it's a Messianic Jewish academic journal. I wish I remember the author, but he was a, a Gentile believer and he did feel like he had a genuine call to participate in a Messianic Jewish community and engage in Messianic Jewish or, or Jewish specific type of uh, Torah practices. And in this article, he's using a Nazarite vow as an analogy to his experience. And the significance of the Nazarite vow is that it's a temporary higher commitment to some standard. And so he used that as an illustration to, to say that his call was temporary to the Messianic Jewish community and to a Jewish lifestyle. 
and it served a very significant and powerful purpose. It like renewed his understanding and his relationship and his spirituality with, with the Lord as a very positive experience. But then he also recognized that at a certain point, the spirit called him back into the church world. And he's very confident that, you know, every step along the way, he was being led by the spirit. And I think that's another helpful thing to, to keep in mind if you're a Gentile considering whether you have a genuine call into the movement, um, is if you have that understanding and that recognition that perhaps it's a, it's a temporary thing. Um, so yeah, I just, I'll, I'll, I'll find the title of that article and, and put it in the, in the description. All right. So I have like so many questions I want to ask, you know, in response to this whole idea of, of Gentiles joining Messianic Judaism and how it relates to the first century context and all those things. But I think that would derail us from, from the conversation we're having. So essentially the, this questioner is asking us dependent, like regardless of the person's context, whether, um, or keeping their context in mind, whether they're in a Christian environment in the church and the, and the Jewish person comes to know Yeshua or whether they're, they're in an Orthodox or conservative reform, basically they're in a Jewish context that doesn't accept Yeshua. When they come to follow Yeshua as the Messiah, do they have the responsibility to basically uh, live as a Jew um, following the Torah? Is that, is that required for Jews to, 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 keep this responsibility to keep following Torah or to actually take on Torah that they weren't engaging with already within their Christian environment. Okay. Yeah. So to, to shift the conversation to the, the primary aspect of, of this question is, you know, whether Jewish followers of Yeshua do have this responsibility to mm -hmm. observe the Torah. And you mentioned a few different types of situations there that deserve, you know, their own thought and, and nuance. But just, just to kind of make the case for the principle of the matter, um, like just whether it's true or not, I think the New Testament does present us with the fact that Jewish followers of Yeshua maintain a covenantal responsibility to observe the Torah. I don't think there's any contradiction with, what, with the Torah's prescription that Israel was given the Torah to follow. I think the, the New Testament in a number of places, both indicate that they assumed this to be the, be the case and also that did remain the case. And so just to mention a few of those, a classic one that, that every Messianic Jewish person will know is Matthew 5, 17. And that's where uh, Yeshua says that he did not come to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill it. And, you know, there's a, a lot to be said about this, um, but Jonathan, you actually did a video on this that I thought you covered it really well, if you want to share a little bit. Yeah, so I'd encourage people to go check out the full video on this, where I, I responded to Tovia Singer, who's engaging with Matthew 5, 17. Uh, but basically, one of the points I make there is that this word abolish in Greek is katalusai, and it can literally be translated as to unyoke. And it's like similar, basically what Craig Keener points out, he's a very uh, well-known New Testament scholar. And he points out that we can translate what Yeshua is saying here is Yeshua has not come to cast off the Torah's yoke, which is a similar um, kind of statement that we find in rabbinic literature of uh, taking, putting, accepting the full yoke of the kingdom of heaven, accepting the full yoke of the Torah, right? So when Yeshua is saying there in Matthew 5, 17, he's kind of like giving a preface to his whole derash on the mount, you could say, or, or ser sermon on the mount. He's, he's giving a preface that whatever he's saying there, he's not here to unyoke Jewish people from keeping God's commandments, keeping the Torah. So I think that's huge when it comes to responsibility because we have this commandments. We, Yeshua gave us, or God has given us these commandments in the Torah. And Yeshua is saying, I'm not here to take that away from you. You're still, you're still responsible to keep these things. Very cool. Yeah, definitely check out that video from there. So there we have Yeshua indicating and showing us that he expected Torah to, to continue and, and taught it as such. But then moving along the timeline, we come to Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem Council. And this is a very crucial text um, that... I'm preparing a video for, you know, I, I, I want to do it really well, so I'm, I'm taking my time with it. But in Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, the question being posed 
is whether Gentiles need to become Jews, become circumcised, and fully responsible to observe the Torah in order to be a member of the Jesus-following community. And so what's the assumption there is that Jewish people remain committed to the Torah. If the question is whether Gentiles need to be, then how much more are they assuming that Jewish people need to be? And through the irony of history, this conversation has become flipped. And now today we talk about whether you can be Jewish and, and believe in, in Yeshua and still do Jewish things. But in Acts 15, the question was exactly inversed. And so there we see the assumption that Jewish people remain Jewish and remained Torah observant. And if it couldn't get any clearer in Acts, in Acts 21, Paul is doing a Nazarite vow um, or he's paying for the Nazarite vow of, of four men in Jerusalem during Shavuot in order to dispel the rumors that were going around about him, that he was teaching Jewish people to forsake circumcision, to forsake Moses. Those rumors were going around, but they were false rumors, as indicated in the passage and, and in the video that Jonathan mentioned that I did earlier on Acts 21. And so there is Paul himself demonstrating that the answer to this question of whether Jewish people should forsake Moses, his answer and James's answer and the Jerusalem elders answer is that no, Jewish people should not forsake Moses. And so again, if we couldn't get, you know, any more clear in Romans 3 31, Paul asked the, the rhetorical question, do we then nullify the Torah by this faith? And he answers, by no means, we uphold it or we establish it. And then again, in Galatians 5.3, he, he says that anyone who lets himself be circumcised is then obliged to follow the whole law. And so that explicitly states that Jewish people are obliged to observe the whole law. And by implication, it states that Gentile people are not obligated to observe the whole law. I know there's a lot of texts I just threw at you. But those are the kind of the key ones that I think establish in principle that Jewish people do have a responsibility to observe the Torah even after becoming a follower of Yeshua. You want to add on anything to that, Jonathan? I actually just want to ask you a question. So on Galatians 5.3, I mean, the way you're describing it is not the way most people uh, talk about this passage, right? Like I, I brought this up with uh, classmates and, and, and people and they're kind of like shocked when they hear this interpretation. So uh, what makes you think that Paul is not just being like sarcastic and he's just um, denigrating circumcision, denigrating Jewish practice. So you'll have to do the whole thing, right? You don't want to do that. Like um, what, what, what do we, when we read this text, is there anything we need to come to the text with the knowledge of, or um, what makes you think that Paul is not just being um sarcastic doing a rhetorical move to um downgrade circumcision and Torah observance right that he's not just you know bloviating and giving right. some i mean he's angry in galatian people talk about like paul is writing in an angry tone so like why why do we take this text and say this is what it, this is what it's saying about um like as a primary text to say jewish people need to be responsible they are responsible to keep torah because of because of the fact that they're jewish they're circumcised right so i i think just the the general theme of Galatians, for one, is important to keep in mind, and that is that Paul was trying really hard to persuade these Gentiles not to undergo circumcision um, because these Gentiles thought they, they had to undergo circumcision to receive the fullness of all that God has for them and to be valid members of the community. And so Paul, I think, is making genuine counter-arguments to what the Gentiles are considering. Mm -hmm. So I think what he says in Galatians 5.3 isn't just him, you know, blowing off steam. He is very polemical throughout Galatians. Mm -hmm. But I think he is being genuine and offering a, a legitimate argument from, from his perspective. Now, I don't think it's his main argument. I think his main argument comes in the verses that come afterwards where he says that, you know, they're essentially putting their, their spiritual well-being at stake. But I, I still think in Galatians 5.3, it's, it's a legitimate thing to consider that Paul is using this argument to these Gentiles. And I think it, it carries real rhetorical weight because 
it shows us, I think, that Paul himself remained Torah observant, consistent with Acts 21. And so the reason why I think that is because of an observation that Dr. Mark Nanos makes. He's a, a Jewish scholar of Paul. And he says that Galatians 5.3 only has rhetorical power if Paul himself remained Torah observant, you know, him being a Jew, him being circumcised. And the reason why he says that is because if Paul, a Jew, stopped being Torah observant, as, you know, many interpretations of Paul attribute to him, then Galatians 5.3 doesn't make any sense because, and really, maybe you could even say Galatians as a whole, because these Galatians, what they would be advocating for is just like, hey, Paul, we want what you have, which is circumcision without Torah observance. What's the big deal? Right, right. That would totally take the power out of this argument. And so considering that I think Paul is making a, a genuine attempt at persuading them, I think Galatians 5.3 has rhetorical power behind it. And that rhetorical power comes from the fact that Paul himself was a, a Jew, a circumcised Jew, to be redundant, and he himself remained Torah observant. Yeah, context definitely helps. And underst I think Mark Nanos does great work there. And this, I think this really shows like when we approach scripture, it's like there's a lot of context and, and Jewish context that we need to have in mind. There's scholarship that uh, we need to be updated on a lot of times to, to know the, the nuances of the arguments being presented. So um, that's what we're trying to do in this channel. We're trying to provide you the benefit of reading all, reading all these scholarly literature um, providing you with that Jewish context so that you can better interpret scripture, be a better reader of the New Testament and the Tanakh, and um, and figure out how we can take these ancient writings, right, and and live them out in a modern Messianic Jewish context, and also see uh, questions related to Messianic Gentiles and Christians. So um, really appreciate you guys listening and, you know, on this conversation. So you brought up Paul and, and of course, like, I think that's crucial for understanding the responsibility for Jews to follow Torah. But I also want to return back to Yeshua. We you mentioned Matthew five seventeen, but I also think it's important to understand, uh, the way Yeshua dressed can actually inform us what his view was of the Torah, right? So in numbers 15, we're reading that, uh, the reason that God commanded Israel to wear fringes, to wear tzitzit, is because you're supposed to look on them to remember to keep the commandments. And if you read Matthew 9, you know this story in Matthew 9, where Yeshua is walking to basically raise uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. He's going to heal her. And this woman comes up to him who has a blood disease for 12 years. I know there's all these details, right? Just kind of jog your memory. And she touches what uh, some translations say, the hem of his garment or the edge of his cloak. But in Greek, the same word that's used there is also used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Tanakh in Numbers 15. So that same word is used um, for describing tzitzit, right? So what that woman was grabbing was Yeshua's tzitzit. And in Matthew 23, we also see that Yeshua is criticizing Pharisees for having pretty much broad tefillin, phylacteries, and long... Uh, uh, tzitzit, the long fringes, which Amy Jill Levine, a, a Jewish New Testament scholar, points out. What, what that indirectly tells us is that Yeshua's fringes and tefillin were, uh, were more narrow and shorter. So what we can know is that the fact that Yeshua wears tzitzit, that he's fulfilling um, the, the commandment to put it between you know, the frontlets of your eyes, we, we read that in the, in the Torah, um, we see that Yeshua uh, the way he lives and dresses uh, indicates that he was Torah observant. And if Yeshua is the model for Jewish believers to to look at, to say how we should live, um, because he himself was was a Jew, um, well, he, he was Torah observant. And I, I think that would be another reason to add to like, uh, we should be too, speaking of as Messianic Jews. That, that's very cool about the tzitzit. And so that actually provides a really good segue into another aspect of uh, this question. You know, our, our questioner is posing a few different types of Jewish followers of Yeshua, the different backgrounds or, or situations that they find themselves in and asking, does even this type of Jewish believer have to, you know, observe Torah and engage in, in Jewish traditional holiday practices? 
you know, what if, you know, they grew up secular and so they have no familiarity with these things or, or let's say they, they came to faith in Yeshua and they've been going to a church for, for months or, or for years. Should even they feel a responsibility to observe Torah and another step of engaging seriously with, with Jewish tradition? I think Jewish followers of Yeshua can take what would Jesus do very literally. Yeshua wore tzitzit, which indicated that he lived his life as a Jewish person, which meant expected to observe the Torah, but he was also a, a real life Jewish person living at a certain moment in history in a certain Jewish community that observed Torah in a certain way shaped by Jewish tradition and developing Jewish tradition. But to hash this out a little bit more, I think Messianic Rabbi Russ Resnick gives a very compelling ethical argument for this case that, that Jewish people who, who follow Yeshua should engage with Jewish tradition. He offers this argument in the introduction to Messianic Judaism uh, published by Zondervan, which is a central resource if you don't have it already. But he offers this line of argument. I'll do my best to, to remember it, but I definitely recommend you read his chapter on this. He starts with a, a Jewish presupposition or, or starting point when it comes to making, you know, ethical decisions and, and ethical axioms. And that is that if, if God does something, then that's, you know, an indication that, that we should do the same. Rabbi Resnick, he points to a very, very cool pas passage in the Talmud where it's mentioning how God heals the sick. So we should heal the sick. God blesses those who are grieving. And so we should bless those who are grieving. God buries the dead. And so we should bury the dead, you know, in reference to, to Moses. As far as making ethical decisions go, if God is doing something, then, then we, should, we should probably follow suit. And so, of course, the New Testament presents Yeshua as God enfleshed, a living, perfect Jew, really. Considering that, Russ Resnick wants us to, to notice that Yeshua's life, like the way he conducts himself throughout the Gospels, um, demonstrates two things. And that is, one, his loyalty to the Jewish people and his embeddedness in the Jewish community in participating in Jewish tradition, and two, his acceptance of his marginalized status as the way he was treated by the larger, the wider Jewish community. These are two attitudes and modes of living that Jewish followers of Yeshua should adopt. And so he points out that Yeshua engaged in Jewish tradition. Resnick points out that Yeshua was baptized or immersed doing a water immersion. And of course that finds its derivation and its, its original context in, you know, the, the ritual mikvah, those emergence and that we see described in, in the Torah. But as far as a water immersion being this personal sign of spiritual renewal and repentance, that was really a tradition that was developed during this time period. And we see, you know, John the Baptist is the one going around and, you know, doing all these repentance uh, baptisms. And so even that was Yeshua engaging in Jewish tradition. That's cool. And then another thing that Resnick points out is the wine at the Passover meal, which as we know, Yeshua makes a, a very big deal out of. He treats it as it was as a very prominent aspect of the Passover meal. And yet... We don't see any prescription in the Torah that wine is to be included in the Passover meal. This inclusion of wine, not simply as like a drink, but like as an aspect of the meal was Jewish tradition developing. And I think we can point to other things like, you know, and I think it's John 10, Yeshua, he observed Hanukkah. You know, that's not a, a Torah prescription. And if we kind of zoom out a little bit more, Yeshua worshiped in the synagogue, which, you know, the synagogue is not a, a Torah prescription. The synagogue as, as a building, as a, as the way they ran things in the synagogue and the way the services were conducted, that was all developed Jewish tradition. And we see, uh, Yeshua giving a derash in the synagogue, which is that in Luke four? Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. So in Luke four, she was doing a Darash from a, a Haftorah portion in, in Isaiah. And that's based off of Jewish tradition. And so I think Jewish followers of Yeshua can take what would Jesus do quite literally. And so we see Yeshua engaging in these Jewish traditions as a way of being part of community, did his, his ministry from within the Jewish community. And despite being marginalized, you know, ultimately by the Jewish community, his place and his heart never left that space. Despite our own marginalization, even today as Messianic Jews, we should still be bold enough to follow that example, engaging in Jewish tradition, taking part in that tradition, and living out our Jewish lives through those means, just as the rest of our Jewish brothers and sisters. And, and I think Christians, even though, even as non-Jews can, can follow Jesus's attitude of being respectful of Jewish tradition and loyal and loving toward the Jewish people. You know, that's not to say that Jewish tradition is, is always right and good. That's not to say that, you know, the modern state of Israel is always in the right, but we can all follow, you know, Yeshua's attitude of, of general respect and, and positivity towards these things. Cool. Yeah. I think, I think it's cool because seeing how Yeshua followed tradition, um, when Paul became a follower of Yeshua, right? He actually didn't break with his Phariseeism. Like in Acts 23, he actually identifies as a Pharisee. And so I think the implications of that could be that his halakha, the way he followed Torah could still be in line with the traditions that he learned from the Pharisees as he, as he grew up as a Pharisee, as he was trained in Jerusalem. Um, one thing I found out really cool is that in Acts chapter uh, 27, verse 9, Paul is on, is on the sea, but he's on the sea during Yom Kippur. And in the text, it says how he fasted. So like, even while he was at sea, when he was uh, probably using a lot of energy, right, you know, with, with his crew or whatever, he was observing the tradition to fast on Yom Kippur. In the commandment to afflict yourself... Um, in, on Yom Kippur, it doesn't actually say fasting. We actually learned that from Jewish tradition. But Paul was uh, accepting and participating in this way of keeping the command to afflict yourselves uh, by fasting, even when he wasn't even present at the Jerusalem temple. He was at sea. So it's cool to see how Paul, who is becomes a follower of Yeshua, still participates, respects, and lives with the Jewish tradition that he was um, surrounded with when he grew up and, and lived out. And to add to your point about Paul continued to identify as a Pharisee, and so, you know, more than likely, he still maintained at least some Pharisaic modes of thinking or, or halakha or, or something. And uh, Dr. David Rudolph, he has this great article on Romans 14 that I think demonstrates this. This deserves its own video. But part of David Rudolph's case uh, for what Paul is saying there, I think it's, it's either verse 14 or verse 20, where Paul says that everything is indeed clean in and of itself. And so what David Rudolph makes of that is that that means that food isn't inherently unclean. And what makes it unclean is whether God declares it unclean. So kind of like this external uh, declaration. And, you know, when you read, you know, in, in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, maybe I have those chapters flipped, but um, you see that, that God prescribed certain right. animals as unclean for Israel specifically. By implication, is not unclean for the nations, which kind of makes sense. You know, we never see the Gentiles being judged by God because, you know, they didn't keep kosher. But part of De Rudolph's point is he brings in a, a text from early rabbinic literature where Rabbi Yochanan, <clears throat> Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is making the same case. Mm -hmm. And it's this, I don't remember the passage, but it's this passage where uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai is debating about the red heifer with, with some other uh, Jewish thinker. And as part of that case, he is talking about food and what makes it unclean or clean. And uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai says the same thing. Food is not unclean 
in itself. It's not inherently unclean. It's unclean as a matter of God's declaration. You know, if, if the idea holds true that that early rabbinic tradition developed Pharisaic halakha, well, then that would be, you know, an indication in Romans 14 that some of Paul's Pharisaic modes of thinking, which is very much embedded in the Jewish community of his time and the Jewish tradition of his time, was still in operation as he was instructing um, his communities in Rome. All right, so this is our last question, and it's the last, um, it's still relevant, it's still from the same group of questions about, about Jewish people in, in Torah. And it asks, what of Jews who have come to faith in and are planted in Christian environments, how does Torah fit into their lives? All right, so we both gave an ethical and a, a biblical argument that like in principle, Jewish followers of Yeshua do have a responsibility to observe Torah and even engage in and participate in Jewish tradition. But here the questioner gives us a, a very, a highly contextualized situation um, of, of Jews who have come to faith and are planted in Christian environments. Like, you know, should they just automatically, as soon as they hear, you know, us make our case that they should abandon their church and, and find, you know, the nearest synagogue, Messianic Jewish or, or otherwise. I think this is a very important question that Messianic Jewish leaders and Messianic Jewish people in general really need to, to think and consider, I think, consider each thing on a case-by-case -case basis. From my view currently, it, it kind of comes down to if there is a healthy Messianic Jewish congregation nearby. Um, and so if there is, I do think the Jewish person who is attending a church should shift toward being a member of that Messian Jewish congregation for the reasons, you know, we described. Depending on the situation, that could be a very tough conversation to have, especially if they have many friends there and they're deeply embedded there. And, you know, like, who knows, like maybe the spirit is leading them to stay there. But I would be inclined to think, you know, that would be for a season and for all the biblical, like, I just can't get around the, the biblical evidence that, that we were describing that Jewish people still have this responsibility. And I think Resnick makes a really strong ethical argument that as Yeshua's example um, was set, that we do, we should engage in, in Jewish tradition. And, and that's all done best in the context of a synagogue. So if there's a healthy Messianic Jewish congregation nearby, I think they should start going there. If there's an unhealthy congregation nearby, then, and it is a healthy church, then I would be inclined, you know, barring knowledge of any other details, I would still be inclined to recommend they, they stay in the, in the church, but make sure they are engaging in the Jewish community in some manner, you know, whether that is attending a non-Messianic Jewish synagogue, at least, you know, during the high holidays and, you know, maybe going to the JCC um, and engaging in, in the Jewish community just at large um, nearby, if there is one. Um, but yeah, that, that can result in some very tough decisions. I'm certainly not naive to that, but that's my current thoughts on that. I don't know, Jonathan, what, what do you think about those things? Yeah, I, I'd say that's my, my current thoughts as well. And, it, and of course, it is a tough situation. You know, like uh, a Christian or thinking yourself as a, a, a Christian and you just happen to be Jewish by your ethnicity and you come to find out that, wait a minute, the New Testament is teaching that I have this responsibility to live as a Jew. I think the way that you can live out your Jewish identity to live out a life of Torah observance, you know, of course, Yeshua is the center of our Judaism, of Messianic Judaism, but the place where you could actually live out as a Jew is in the Messianic synagogue setting. And if there isn't a healthy, and of course, Eric, that was good that you said that, a healthy Messianic synagogue available, then um, staying in your church and engaging in the Jewish life you're surrounded with, um, hopefully that's available whether that's um, going to Passover seders, Shabbat dinners, all, all these ways in which we can live out our Jewish identity, keeping kosher, that's, that's on you. You know, that's something you can do with, even if you're in a church. But ultimately, I think surrounding yourself by Messianic Jews and Gentiles who are all 
have the, um, the, the goal of orienting their lives in a Jewish manner and worship in a Jewish manner, um, I think that's, I think that's ideal. Okay. I think, I think that's the, um, uh, what, what should be done. But I also think that, um, uh, Stuart Dowerman, Rabbi Stuart Dowerman, um, he makes a really interesting case that I, I think is persuasive, at least for me, um, in the, the same book that Eric was talking about, Introduction to Messianic Judaism. So he has a chapter on Messianic Jewish outreach. And he quotes here Kendall Sullen, a professor at Emory University, talking about um, the distinctions or the significance of Jews and Gentiles. So listen to what Kendall Sullen says. He says, Christians should recover the biblical habit of seeing the world as peopled, not by Christians and Jews, but by Jews and Gentiles, by Israel and the nations. So he goes on to say, human sin is never merely the sin of the creature against the creator consummator. Human sin is always the sin of Jew and Gentile, of Israel and the nations. So what Stuart Dowerman does with this is understanding that there actually is significance between Jew and Gentile in the world that we live in. He says, this is, this is Dowerman, he says, if departure from Torah living is the measure of Jewish sin, should not a return to the paths of Torah be a sign of Jewish repentance? And I think like he's, he understands that's kind of shocking to hear, right? Like repenting for, uh, for not keeping Torah, like that is... That's, 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 a, that's a big claim. But he actually roots this in the scripture. So we see in Nehemiah, no, notice how Jewish sin and Jewish repentance, notice how they're described here. So it says, they disobeyed and rebelled against you, throwing your Torah behind their backs. They killed your prophets for warning them and that they should return to you and committed other gross provocations. You warned them in order to bring them back to your Torah. Yet they were arrogant. They paid no attention to your mitzvot but sinned against your rulings. So Dowerman points out that the two things of, of sin should be underscored. So it's throwing the Torah behind our backs that is not paying attention to the mitzvot, the commandments, and rejection killing of God's chosen messengers. So they're repenting for rejecting the commandments, right? That's, that's what they're repenting for. And then if you look in uh, the martyrdom of Stephen in the New Testament, of course, in Acts chapter 7, uh, this is what Stephen says before, before he's killed. He said, stiff-necked people with, the, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you continually oppose the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. You do the same things uh, your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who told in advance about the coming of the Tzadik, the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers, you who receive the Torah as having been delivered by angels, but do not keep it. So here Stephen is actually uh, criticizing uh, specific Jewish people who he's surrounded with, who he's, he's saying are, are guilty of certain sins. And one of those sins is not being faithful to keep the Torah's commandments. So the idea that Dowerman is presenting here is that part of repentance for the, there's a, there, basically what he's saying here is that there's a distinction between Jew and Gentile in the sense that a Gentile is repenting of sins, of course. There's universal moral sins that we are all guilty of as humanity. But for Jews uh, who are not keeping the mitzvot, the commandments, that is, that's, that's a sin. And that's something that Darman says should be repented of. And if we're repenting of that sin, of, of not keeping the commandments, then, which of course I'm guilty of, I'm not keeping the commandments and I, I do my best, but because the repentance of not keeping the commandments means that we need to turn and orient ourselves to keep the commandments, right? And there's a shift there. And so if someone is in a Christian environment or was raised in a secular environment in which they are not keeping kosher, they're not observing Shabbat, they're not keeping the festivals, they're not orienting themselves in a way that we would say is Torah observant. And I know that means that can mean many different things, but the idea is that committing yourself to follow God's commandments as, as indicated in the Torah. Repenting of not doing that is, is supposed to lead to doing that. And so I think, yes, I think from a biblical perspective, I think Dharma makes this persuasive argument that a follower of Yeshua, who's Jewish, who's, a, who's a, in a Christian environment, he should repent or, he, or she should repent and orient themselves to Torah observance. And the same thing goes uh, for someone who's secular. Come know Yeshua, 
sees that uh, comes across our channel or comes across another way of, of reading a book, reading Introduction to Messianic Judaism, whatever you ha whatever have you, read the New Testament itself and say, yeah, I got to orient myself towards keeping the commandments. Um, they should do that. And I think that's a uh, biblically based uh, perspective. Wow. That's, that's heavy. That's heavy. But uh, I'll have to think about that one. And I mean, it's hard to disagree with it on, on the face of it. Right. But, yeah. Uh, I, I read that and I was <laughs> like, that, that is, that's, 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 that's a lot. It's a big, it's a big claim, but um, it's heavy. I, I think he, I think he makes persuasive argument. I mean, but I'd love to hear your guys thoughts because um, of course, you know, what we're saying about this. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. When it comes to these sorts of claims and these sorts of questions, exploring these things are, you know, one of the primary reasons why we, we made this channel. Like we didn't make this channel because we were under the impression that we have the answer to every single one of these questions. Right. You know, one of the primary reasons why we made this channel is because we don't know, <laughs> you know, the answer to every single question. And so we want to explore it, you know, both on our own, you know, doing research, but also, you know, hearing from you guys and bringing on speakers and, you know, really thinking through these things um, with, with all of you. That's part of what we wanted to do with this mailbag episode. We wanted to hear questions directly from you guys, specifically our financial supporters. Again, thank you so much. Hopefully this was a good way to demonstrate our, our thanks to you. And so, yeah, let us know what you think of not only the topics that we covered, but also, you know, this format, um, whether it's something you'd like to, to see again. And yeah, if you'd, if you'd like to ask your own questions and, and you're not a supporter, uh, hop on to Subscribestar. Um, the link will be in the description. Thank you for joining us here today on Two Messing Juice. Thank you guys.